This is a Media 8 production. This podcast may have explicit themes and swearing and may not be suitable for children. A couple of times I at sea, I nearly sank. You know, I, I, I thought, this is it. We've finished massive seas, engines, nothing working. And I thought I'd go, I wish I had, like I had a couple of friends that uh, were both uh, electricians, electrical engineers, and they worked in the mines. I wish, I, I wish... Jeff and I wish Greg was here. They, they wouldn't throw the towel in because my other engineers had said, one said, oh, I'm too tired, I can't work long. The other one said, I've got a headache, I want to sit down for a while. No, we're going to sink. The world is full of amazing people and once a week I get the opportunity to interview one of them. My name is Brett McCallum and this is Awesome Humans. Sometimes in life you meet people that should be part of your family. You never get to choose family or do you? I met this amazing bloke over 10 years ago at a barbecue with a mutual friend and their family. His daughter went to school with their daughter and it was just a good old-fashioned Aussie family barbecue. Different friends, different people, all just having a chat. He was an interesting bloke and he seemed to be have a lot of experience in life. It was one of those conversations that was just easy and kept on going. We then arranged to have a hit of golf and what happens at golf changes your life. Over a game of golf, everything changes. I learned so much about this bloke, it was unbelievable. He had so many life experiences and had done so much, it was amazing. Since that day, we became brothers. We learned we were born on the same day, although many, many, many years apart, but we were both meant to be in each other's lives. I trust this man with my life and his family is my family. One of the only people who never got the opportunity to meet my old man, but each year comes and celebrates his life with my brother and my mum. Today we get to hear his story about his, this amazing bloke who's a committed husband-ish and father of two awesome kids. He's a very good friend and a brother from another mother, Greg Probilski. How are you, buddy? Very well, thanks, Brett. Very well. Did you like that intro? Uh, spectacular. <laughs> Thank I you I don't know much. if I can live up to it, though. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, in my phone, you're still Greg Z. That's cool. Because I never knew how to spell Probilski. So where's Probilski come from? Polish. That's Polish? Yeah. My father came out here after the Second World War as a, I suppose you can take it as a, a war refugee. Okay. Mate, a random fact, and one you probably don't know, is there's actually 13 Greg Probilskis in the white pages in the United States of America. Did you know that? I know there's one living in Perth, and I haven't met any living in uh, in the States. There's 13. That's huge. Yeah. I, I never thought that would be the case. But anyway, mate, one of the things I really like to do on here is get a good understanding of the people that I interview. And obviously we know each other very, very well. We know our families and there's a lot of love in the room. We do lots of stuff. We've done good things, bad things, ugly things, all that sort of stuff. But I want to go all the way back. What's your first ever memory? How far back can you go? Oh, I'd probably go back. First memories. I'd say I'm probably about three or four years old. Yep. And what's that? And just something that sticks in, in my mind. Uh, it's the front door opening up, which led into our lounge at home, and the doctor walking in, and that's the first thing I can remember. And do you remember why the doctor walked in? Yes, I do now. I had a brother that was uh, about 18 months younger than me, and he had actually passed away with uh, what they used to call it cough, cot death then. Oh, wow. Yeah. But it, you know, it didn't seem sad to me. But that's that would be my earliest childhood memory of of anything major happening in my life. I would say. And do you look back now and feel sad about that? No, no, because no? you didn't did, you didn't really sort of understand it at the time. Yeah, I didn't understand it. Yeah, yeah. So you come from a big family. 
Mm-hmm. How, tell us about your family. How big is your family? Um, three, Immediate. Three brothers and four sisters. Three brothers and four sisters, and obviously your mum and dad. And mum and dad, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, as I said, my father was Polish, came out after the Second World War. Met my mother in Sydney, an Australian lady originally from Young, coming from a, a rural background, or the, the parents owned uh, orchards. Her parents did? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and then she moved to Sydney prior to the war starting and met dad when he came out, and uh, he was actually, she was been out on the blind date with some other people, and they went going from, you know, on a bus into town from, I think it was out uh, on the northern suburbs in the town, and my father sat next to her mum and said, oh, but you're supposed to be sitting with that, that girl down there. And he said, no, but I'd rather sit with you if, if that's okay. Oh, that's smooth. That's yeah, hey, yeah. where the sun gets it from. He was <laughs> smooth. And my condolences, your mum just passed away recently, and what a wonderful woman. I had the pleasure of meeting her a number of times and uh, made to put up with the uh, all your siblings. She had to be a very strong-willed woman. An amazing lady, an amazing lady, yes. So loved the footy. Loved the footy. Unfortunately, she loved those sea eagles, the which was a bit sea sad. Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, Goulburn. You you grew up in Goulburn. Why why did mum and dad go to Goulburn? Is that where they were from or no, up on there? No, dad when he came out here, he didn't know whether he was gonna stay a, a year or two or three or four. Uh and then he met mum and and, and they got married, of course. And it, he really wanted to go back into farming. He, he, his family were from uh, farming in the uh, southwest of Poland. But, of course, a new immigrant, uh, finding that sort of money wasn't really that easy. So he started on the railways as, as, a, as a driver, as a fireman, in the time when there were steam engines. And, and the only way he could get ahead quicker in the railways, on the, the New South Wales Railway, was to um, leave Sydney and go to the country area. So he said, Mum or to, said to his, my mother, you know, to get ahead, we need to move out of Sydney. If that's okay, would you? And uh, we've been offered. I've been offered a position in Goulburn. And my mother said, yes, uh, yes, let's do that. Under one proviso is that eventually we come back and live in Sydney. Okay. And were they married then? They were married. Yes, married prior to moving to Goulburn. Okay. And then no kids, obviously at that no stage. No kids at that stage. No. So you were all born and bred in Goulburn. Yes. Yeah. And how long were you in Goulburn? I was in Goulburn till I was 22. Wow. And you, what number of kid are you out of all the kids? I'm number three. Number three. What's above, what's below? I have uh, the oldest in our family. was My oldest sibling was my sister Anna. She uh, was four years older than me. And then my brother Martin, whom you've met. Yeah, I met Martin. Yeah, great bloke. And then below? And then below, uh, the next was Roger. Or it was my brother, the other brother that had passed away. Uh, at a younger age, and then uh, Roger, who you know, he's a doctor living yeah. in Newcastle, and then assistant Helen, no, sorry, my sister Lynn, yeah. and then Noni, and then my brother. There's Lyndon, lots of them. I understand why then, you're getting mixed up. And then finally, I have to count my fingers now. <laughs> and then uh, my youngest is Helen. So, what's the, the difference between number one and number seven? Uh, age difference. I think my sister Helen just turns fifty this year. It must have been twenty. No, no, it'd be more than that. Yeah, it'd be just on twenty years. Yeah. Twenty years, mum was having babies. Yeah, and yeah. then and then looked after you until obviously they all grew up. Yep, but still looked after you anyway. Your mum was like that, Always. wasn't she? Always, hey? yes. yeah, yeah. That, that's amazing. So school, how was school life? Where'd you start? Tell us from the start. Fantastic. Started at a very small school in in, in West Goulburn mm-hmm. called a, lad, a Lady of Sorrows School, which was a, a Christian a, a, school, Christian school, Catholic yep. school in in the west west part of Goulburn, and and hence. We were talking about football, why yep. I, I wear 
um, but go for the Rabbitohs at the age of seven. The, one of the fathers there, uh, he somehow got hold of the uh, South Sydney Juniors uh, footy club and yep. we were starting up a football team. He got hold of the jerseys for nothing and uh, <laughs> no. I've played in the red and green from the age of seven, so I've never sort of moved away from the Rabbitohs. <laughs> I've supported them ever since. I think it was a great school, a, a small school. Only went from kindergarten up until um, second year, second year two. Yep. So and infant then, school, infant as we school, called it in yeah. New South Wales, yeah. And then from there I moved down into town uh, to St. Patrick's Primary School from the age from, from third class, third, fourth and fifth. Yep. And sixth. And then started at St. Patrick's College up on the hill. In the high school. Yes. Yeah. So you went to the, the – and was it the same group of friends the whole way through? All like, the way through. So yeah. was Goulburn a very uh, insular place? What I mean by that was like the same people that started in kindergarten. Were you still in high school with those guys, or yeah. did people? Which was it transient? Here's, here's this. I've got one guy that um, actually his his wife was up visiting uh, last week. I've known him longer than anybody else in this world. Wow. It, we were born in the, in the same hospital, for, <laughs> for, uh, eight hours apart. Wow. And a guy got the name of Steve Sykes. So what that's a great day, obviously. Absolutely they had the wonderful. Best birthday on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> and even now, as you probably know, you've met some of them. You know, I've got a lot of those guys that I grew up and went to school with, yep. played sport with. Uh, there's only one of the guys I'd say out of, out of 20, 30 strong, strong friends that's still in Goulburn. And we've all, of course, spread our wings. And, Around the and, world. And we, yes, and we keep in contact. Not all of us, but not all the time. But once you meet up, you might see them once a year, once every five years. It's yeah. like yesterday. It's, it's wonderful. Goulburn was that sort of a place. It was a, it was a really place, a great place. Uh, some say, oh, you know, why well, you would have preferred Sydney or something like that. Looking at now, no. Yeah. Growing up, I look at it. I read in a, uh, a book once by Cahill Gibran. I think it was called The Prophet. And in there, uh, he says two things which I've always sort of I've liked those these two sayings. And one was, in relationships, there must be spaces. And the other thing was, love is like a blanket. It's meant for warming, not smothering. And I found in Goulburn, <laughs> That's seriously, awesome, it's great. Isn't it? it is. But Goulburn, hey. Goulburn was like that. Where you would you'd have a, a lot of different families, generally somewhere between four and eight kids, nine kids. Yep. Uh, and everywhere you went, you weren't you were you were you were watched upon, not uh, in in a guiding way. Different parents, you know, they they look at you and they took you go to their houses. You'd always be well looked after, whether it was a cup of Milo or sometimes a quick yep. kick in the backside because you and then their child had been playing up. <laughs> but it was it, 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 well. it was a loving yeah. loving sheltering place to grow up. And and very and most most of the families that we associated with were all very very positive. And during that those young years, obviously you're in a small town. Goulburn's not the biggest town on the planet. No. Um, your surname's Probilski. Yeah. Was that something that was a negative during that whole time? Did you ever find that you were bullied or harassed or anything like that in regards to that? No, never, never, never once. And years later, I think I understood why a lot of. Uh, immigrants came out after the Second World War from all areas of Europe yep. and around the world. And you found that, if you you probably remember, you'd have little pockets where there'd be little, all the Italians would live here yeah, and, yeah. and the Greeks here and the Poles there. When my father came out, the first thing he did, he, he, on, the, on the way out on the ship, on, on, he, he started learning how to speak English. Big difference, isn't it? And he got out to Australia and he read things pretty well. You know, he saw that you're in your Australian, people called wogs and all this. yeah. We were never, ever once, I never had that name called to me uh, and I'd never felt as if I was judged as being a new Australian. Yeah. Uh, because Dad had set that, th- he, he, I sat down with him once and said, Dad, why didn't you speak teachers Polish? 
He said, son, I had to learn. This was a new country. I saw things what happened. So we moved into Western Goulburn in Dugarfield. We built that house there on purpose because it was a great area. You had people on the railways. You had people that were working on the streets. You had doctors. You had business people. You had lawyers. You had such a, a almost a melting pot of Australian societies in that area we lived in. He said, and so I wasn't going to live a little Poland when I moved to Australia. We assimilated. Your mother was Australian anyway. He said, yeah. but that, that's what I saw. And so we, no, so we never felt that at all. And also with sports, you're out doing things all the time. Yeah. You know, and you're mixing. And no, I never had that. But I did notice some of the Greeks and the Italians would get called names and that. But no, you look now and with everything being politically correct, it wasn't <laughs> correct. Political it wasn't correct. But yeah. none of those guys I still know now that were from other European families, it, it wasn't there wasn't hurt coming from the voices of, of the, the guys and the girls when those names were used. It shouldn't. It's not right. I'm not condoning it. No, not at all. It was a different time. Yeah, it was no. a different time. And that, that's what I find amazing that it never happened because back then I remember yeah. the old uh, Kingswood country and all that sort yeah. of stuff, bloody wogs and yes. all that sort of stuff and that sort of thing. And I think in some small insulated environments it's actually a lot worse. But obviously, yeah. Goulburn wasn't that yeah. type of place. No, or look, you didn't see that type of stuff. Didn't see it. But we—I mean, I went to the the, the, the Catholic schools all the time. Uh, but again, then you, you were treated as equals. Yeah, there was no—you never really got any. Not from the public school no. kids, though, because you're the bloody cafe. No, no, no. But even, <laughs> and I played sport, and, and it, my, most of the people in my streets, the kids in my streets, all yep. went to the state schools, and they were great. We just had a—we had a great time. Yeah, and, and, and no hassles, no bullying. So, and it was the good old days. I know people say that all the time, but like you sort of go out, Mum, I'll be home when the streetlights come on. I'll, uh, I'll, and your mum always knew where you were, which was you were, were around. You weren't getting yourself in trouble because you know that, as you mentioned earlier, one of the other mums would have kicked you up the bum if you did something yeah. wrong. And uh, I'm sure you weren't the, uh, the, the best child. I'm sure you got yourself into a lot of mischief oh, as a kid. Know. How could you say that? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's quite funny. I remember, and one of the things I love when we have a beer and we have a chat and some of the stories that you, that, that we all sort of share and stuff and when you've got your driver's licence about just literally going down to the local cop shop, yeah, you can drive, here you go, buddy. And like all these other kids are taking lots of times but you were known and that's, yep. that's sort of, that's the good thing about a country town. Goulburn is a small place. How many people live in Goulburn, do you know? When you were there? 25,000. All right, so out of 25,000, it's created some of Australia's greatest sporting legends. Mm-hmm. Why Why is that? Two guys from Goulburn, or two guys that I know, um, Simon Poitavin. So I'm a very good friend of yours. Wallaby player. Yep. And Gavin Miller's another one. Oh, Gavin Miller, the yeah. rugby, rugby league, league player. player. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's, there's quite a few the others. Carnies. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And they're good, bad and ugly, whichever way you want to look at it. Still played rugby league yes. for Australia. Yeah. yeah. Great. So that, that that sporting pedigree from Goulburn, what, what is it? Is that because there was nothing else to do, so you played sport? It was a massive sporting town. Whether it was, I mean, one of the, so hockey was probably one of the strongest sports, if not the hockey, strongest. Really? Field hockey, really? Why hockey? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. And there, yeah. and, and, and we had, like, you had the Crookwoods, another tiny town outside of Goulburn. Some great Australian hockey players came from out that way as well. Sport was, I just think it was almost bred from the earth up. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you said, you, 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 there was plenty of sports grounds. Right across from where we lived was a place called Garfield Park. And, you know, we had the captain of the, of the local, when we left school, the guy across the far end of the park, he captained the local rugby league team, the Goulburn rugby league team. Yep. We had Gavin Miller. In that park, there was a cricket pitch there as well. So it didn't matter what the season was, what the weather was. You that, were always playing sport. And that park was full of people. But it was yeah. full of a, of a melting pot of, of nationalities as well. Yeah. Uh, so and, and all the time in that park, 
it was open on one side of the road and all the other side was the, the housing commission houses on the other side of us with the back fences pointing that way. So there's always a parent somewhere, whether it was a lady hanging up the line or some guy out yeah. doing his mowing. There was always somebody around. Keeping an eye on yeah, you. Yeah, not keeping much, but... Yeah, knowing what's going yeah, on. Yeah, So there wasn't, wouldn't have been much crime in that back then. No. Yeah, because no. like we left our doors open, we left the yes, cars unlocked, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Here's this. If you came to our house, the front, the front door, right, there was a light on the right-hand side. Dad would keep the key on top of the on light. <laughs> Around the back door, when you walked out our back door, you closed the back door, you took the key out of the back door and there was a nail between the bricks and the mortar and you just put the nail on the brick <laughs> and you went away. Sometimes we'd go away for the weekends and, and we'd come home and there'd be a night. There'd be a note on the kitchen table from one of our cousins or uncles saying, oh, look, sorry to miss you, but thanks. We popped in, had a cup of tea and had some of your biscuits. Hopefully <laughs> home next time we come through or we pass through. So yeah, That's I mean, amazing. Isn't there, it? You there couldn't do that nowadays. No, there wasn't one lock on one window. It has sash windows. You couldn't lock the house. So you went to school you, you, and you had a good time. And, and were you a cool kid? Were you a nerd? Were you a sporty? What, what were you? How did you fit in? Oh, I think I got on with most people Bit of a chameleon, I think. I, it was always great. Mixed with anybody. It's a good way to put it, chameleon, fit and, in with yeah, it. Playing sports and, and, and schooling, it was a, I was able to get on with everybody. And also, then leaving school at a younger age, it's at 16 and doing an apprenticeship. So I was either, you know, I played a lot of sport and, and did okay. You know, I ended up, I played you know, social rugby player, really, but I played yeah. first grade cricket and we played squash and basketball. So, as you said, from it was a big sporting town. So you, you got to know everybody and, and they got to know you. And it was just a, that opened up doors and, and friendships. So, yeah. It was, it's pretty it amazing awesome. when you look back at it. So, from it, let's go back to sport because that's one of my favorite subjects. So, obviously, Simon Portivan is a very good friend of yours and uh, he captained Australia in, in, he was a wallaby. Yeah. Everyone wants to want, want, want to be a wallaby. Um, is he like treasured in Goldman now and Gavin Miller and those guys? Are they, are they like, um, they go back and everyone's like, oh, wow, there's like, he's one of our Goulburn people. Yes, yes, Simon in particular. Simon yep. put a lot back into the into the community, even though he'd moved to Sydney and lived in Sydney and still does. But, you know, like Point of an Oval is the main rugby oval now. It's named is that after from him. Simon? Or yes, from, that's from yeah. Simon. But he's he's always helped where he could to, to grow the sport there and to do whatever he could. And also at, at the school, his old school, St. Pat's, which is now called Trinity College, mm-hmm. he, Simon continues to put in, no matter whether it's in Goulburn or Sydney to rugby, whatever he does, he's he's not one of these guys that has, has I would say, uh, reached his fame and, 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 and make fortune or whatever. Simon puts in, he's always a part of the community. I've, I've had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of times. and one of the most humble people I've ever met in my life. Yeah, and the, the thing is, I find because he's come from that culture, from that small town, that they're a different type of person. Yeah. And that, that's why I look at it from what I've seen from the outside in. I think it's amazing that these guys give back. Do you think playing rugby and playing sport with people of those sort of statures improved your game? Did you become a better player because of them? Do you think? Yeah, I think I've got a better player and maybe a better person later on in life as well yep. because these people became, they were your mates and your friends, but they also become somewhat of your of your role models. Mm-hmm. But in, with Simon in particular, like he... His 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 mother and father were wonderful people with the same virtues and strengths that he had, and saying his and his other brother and his sisters, they're all wonderful people. That's all about parenting, though. It is, yeah, yeah. And I, I I've got this new saying that I, I live by at the moment is that kids weren't born assholes; they were taught to be them. <laughs> because it's so true. Like if you've been parented good and and you become a really nice, kind person, that's learnt behaviour. And, and I believe that that's, that's a wonderful thing, personally. So you left school at 16. You went, what trade did you do? 
air conditioning and refrigeration. Why? It was great. It was, it was a time just before they, you know, about a year after I started, you had to go on to sixth form become an apprentice. It was oh, something okay. that changed. We, England did it 10 years before, and, and like we still do now, we copy so many things from the UK. Why, yeah, I don't know. 10 years later. <laughs> yeah, but we do. But So we started doing that as well. Um, I picked it out. I, I had a choice of starting as an electrician, a plumber, or a carpenter. But air conditioning and refrigeration meant that I had to go and do a block relief course at the Institute of Technology in Ultimo three times a year. We had a, t- a TAFE in Goulburn. But it didn't Ultimo do, in Sydney. In Ultimo yep. in Sydney. But it didn't do um, air conditioning refrigeration. And that's the reason I took it. I thought. Okay. Get not, to go to the big smoke. Yeah, yeah right. And I did. <laughs> and, and that was great. So for those three years from the age of 16, 17, 18, even I had been coming and going from Sydney during school holidays, uh, mainly to stay with my aunties and that re- relatives down there, it had a chance of me getting away a bit more. And I was always. So was that something that you wanted to do? Obviously, like I know a lot of people that grow up in small. I grew up in a small mm-hmm. town as well, um, and I always wanted to leave. I always no. wanted to get out, but, but I always loved coming back. Well, don't get me wrong, but yeah. it's also go and see the wider world, go and see yeah. this sort of stuff. Whereas some of the people never wanted to go anywhere; they just wanted to stay there, do the same thing yeah. over and over and over again. Is that so? Obviously, going to Ultimo in Sydney was something that you thought, "Oh, wow, that gives me an opportunity to have a crack." Yeah, I, I, I get out. And I, I'd always enjoyed Sydney. Uh, you think of it with eight children in the family. My dad's a, a, a train driver, so he's doing shift work. He's a lot. Of, he's, a, he's away a lot. Um, school holiday times. My mum's got somewhere between you know depends how many kids at home between eight and four or five. And I probably wasn't the best behaved of all the children. So my my auntie like was born twenty eighth of February. Yeah, really. Yeah, great lady. And so I'd get this thing. Oh, we're going to put you on the train. And you go down and stay with Auntie Molly for a while. Yeah. And he, I was seven years old. I'd, I'd be put on the train in Goulburn. Go down the central was station. Was driving? No, no, on my own, oh, yeah. on my own. And my auntie Molly would pick me up in, in at the central railway station. But wow. being a railway child, you were put in with the um, the girls that looked after the the buffet car. Okay, so you got looked after. Oh, yeah, that was wonderful. <laughs> was wonderful. And you would have sweet taught the girls yeah. in the buffet cart anyway. Yeah, it was a nice thing. You're like, oh, you're giving a bit of crayon on a piece of paper and <laughs> told to behave. <laughs> so, in effect, you were naughty and got sent to Annie Molly's. Yeah, Is we, that what happened? Yes, yeah, pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> so, you became a, a refrigeration mechanic. Mm-hmm. And um, so, that that's both sort of a bit of plumbing and a bit of sparky stuff as well, isn't it? It, it, it's, it was a wonderful trade in hindsight, it was the best trader could have possibly done. Because when you're doing refrigeration and air conditioning, when you're working on those systems and being to do with physics, you have to be an extremely good welder and solder. You have to know electrical work, circuitry. You have to be able to weld. There's so many things that it set me up for later on in life. Okay. And, and the biggest bonus of that, all that was the, the first company I worked for was called Taswell's in Goulburn. It doesn't, they're not there anymore. Bob Taswell was my boss and a chap called Richard Whittaker. Their eye to detail, their pride in what they did, I had the two best teachers. I, I learned more in three years than I could have in 10 years of engineering, wow. going, going to the best universities, and I could not have worked with a better company and two better people. And to this day, I've never had a chance to say, Bob, if he's passed it, thank you, or Richard, thank you. They were just so good. You know, it was one of these days, if I made a mistake, like I had to drive the Crookwell or somewhere 30 or 40 miles away to fix something, if I got back and the next day something didn't work, Bob would say, the boss would say, Greg, after you finish work, go back out and see what's wrong. You know, you were sent back out there to fix it. 
Which is the way it should be. So yeah, so the, the pride, but just the, the integrity they had, but the, the, their skills were just so good. So yeah, my, my old man was a chippy, and he was a master craftsman. And the thing is, I remember him sitting there getting so frustrated when they started bringing out pre-built frames for houses, and that all come down that that's not going to work. Why is that, Dad? Because they haven't got the bright connections they haven't got this they haven't got and it's not right <laughs> it's just like and that's the old way they did stuff they did stuff properly as opposed to fast prefab prefabricated type stuff and you find that now like stuff that was built back then is still around now stuff that was built after that just lasts for three or four years and you've got to replace it it's uh it's a big difference isn't it yeah so you did your trade you then went and worked with treswells then where, where'd you go after that after that i think it was nice because most most of my friends that i'd grown up with uh had finished school, they went on to go to universities. They gradually started leaving Melbourne. Um, and probably about 2021, I realised, what am I going to do next? And it, it wasn't something really that I sat down and wrote about and thought, thought about. about. Yeah. No, I just thought, hang on, I'm going to do something. I saw some movie or heard, heard some song or Go West, young man. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go to, I'm going to, go to Western Australia. I didn't know what I was going to do. Yeah. And uh, so I put an ad in the paper to sell my, my, my car, which was this purple HQ panel van, you know. Hey, the panel. Just, the, about, some, about the colour of these mic. There's some stories in that panel, man. So, but, I, but I forgot to tell my mum that I'd, uh, or my dad, that I'm going to move away eventually. And uh, <laughs> I put the ad in the paper. So, and I, I used mum's phone number, home phone number. We didn't have mobile phones in those days, you know, yep. the, the late 70s. And uh, I forgot to tell her that I'd put the ad in the phone. And so, <laughs> I come home and I come, and I'd moved out of home at that stage. I was staying with a mate of mine, or a couple of friends in, uh, in Goulburn, sharing a house. And uh, there's this note, oh, Greg, uh, please come and see me as soon as you can. So I thought, I got home from work that day, I rushed around. Yeah, yeah, what's wrong, Mum? I think your mates are playing a bit of a trick on you. I said, well, he said, these guys have been phoning home wanting to buy your car. I said, oh, I forgot to tell you, Mum, I'm, I've decided I'm going to go to Western Australia. She said, why? I said, I heard this song or something about go west, young man. So it's, you know, and uh, most of my other friends are moving aside and, you know, my older brothers and sisters had moved away yeah. as well. And it was just a natural progression. Once I'd gone so far work-wise, I'd gone so sport-wise, I was still playing cricket. And you know, as the Golden Rugby Club was a fantastic place to, to have friends. You know, yeah, it, was yeah. just, it was just a great social atmosphere. Social and I was more of a social player. I wasn't a, never going to make first grade or go yeah. any further in it. Uh, but it was just time to move on. I, I don't know. Something said, hey, go. And I did. So you went to Western Australia? Yeah. And yeah. what did you do in Western Australia Well, when you landed? I went to Sydney. I took my tools with me and I caught the, what it was, the Indian Pacific. The, I, I caught the train. Oh, the train. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. be bothered flying. It was a brilliant. <laughs> still to this day, probably the best five-day straight journey I've ever had. It was just oh, Five days from Sydney to Perth? Perth, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and I got there and I thought, well, because I could do air-conditioned refrigeration, I'll find some work. And I'm looking around and lost soul and looking, walking up and down. And I met these guys in the pub and rough-looking guys. And they were talking about and, I said, where are you from? You're from East, aren't you? You're from the East. I said, yeah, how do you know? He said, you're too clean looking, mate, and you haven't got a scruffy beard. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's all right. I'll come buy you a beer. And they sort of looked at me. I did, and they started talking to him. And they said, oh, we work in the mines. I said, do you? Whereabouts? Oh, about one and a half thousand miles up in the middle of the great, in, in the great sandy desert, you know. And I said, oh, that's that's interesting. And they said, oh, they need fridges and air conditioning people up there. Why don't you should go and see these couple of companies? And that's how I started. I went and put my name down for a couple of jobs. and. Uh, I picked the one that was furthest away from Perth, up near Marble Bar. The place was called Shea Gap, and I flew up there and just started work, you know, doing air conditioning refrigeration. So fly and fly out, or you just moved No, no, there? no, no. Shea Gap was called the Space City of the Northwest. Okay. It was uh, designed by all these amazing people. So they just, this, this township would 
withstand any cyclone that could be taken. Really? Yeah, yeah. Is it still there? No, got knocked down. Through the cyclone? I, I went through three cyclones. <laughs> I went through three cyclones in five weeks, and the third one we got the iron to wipe the place out. Oh, really? <laughs> but they rebuilt it after I yeah. left, you know, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was great. So how long were you there for? Oh, about 14 months, yeah. 14 months, then when, time to go back home? No, I thought, ah, oh, where to next? I loved it. It was it was wonderful. There's about 500 people, but, you know, there was a, you're a young kid, you're 21, 22 years yeah. old, and you can work and it was great. The conditions were wonderful and you could, you Were know, there ladies there? Yeah, there was about 20 single girls. Oh, was there? Mm. <laughs> and uh, look, it was just, it was time to move on. You know, I got, it got stale, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I, I just decided, right, and, and uh, I had, it's the first time I'd ever come across and, and lived with, um, uh, I would say, non-Christian people. And there's yep. a, a lot of uh, Chinese and uh, and and uh, people of Malay descent that yep. come from, uh, were born in the Cocos and Keeling Islands. Oh, okay. And I hung around with them mainly for most of that time. And that was the first time I'd, you know, I, in Goldman, that was it. You know, you, I think the only other person that wasn't a, of a Christian religion or background was was the local jeweler, you know. Yeah. And uh, Jewish people, and that was the first time I'd worked with with Muslim people and Chinese, and they were just spectacular. Most of the Aussies up there, and the Kiwis and the Brits, you know, there's so much, a lot of fighting and aggro that went on unnecessarily. And I just thought it was time to go. I had a great time, and the first time in my life I'd saved up any money, so I thought, well, I'm going to go overseas. So overseas yeah. called. Yeah, yeah. So where yeah. did we go? First off, Singapore, just for, for three weeks. Just for a, with, a holiday? Yeah, with a, a girl I'd met there. We went there and we, she was from Singapore originally or she had parents there. So I went back there and had a look around Singapore with her and another Kiwi girl that travelled with us. Then I went back to Goulburn and thought about maybe staying. I got back and I thought, oh, gee, this is different now. It's different when you go back, and isn't after, it? After being away for a solid, nearly that was nearly a year, nearly a year and a half. Yeah. And I decided after, I just thought, well, no, I'm going to keep moving. And I went down to my old bank there and met the assistant bank manager who I'd known for years. Uh, and he said, oh, Greg, oh, there's a, you're back in town. That's great. He said, I've, I've done it. You can, there's room more now for another air conditioning refrigeration company. And, and I've got this industrial site with a, you could move into this uh, building and set up now. And I said, oh, no, I'm going overseas. He said, but this is the perfect opportunity. I said, no, I'm off again. So I did. Yeah. I just, and then I flew to London after that. And that's how I, that I really started traveling was I hit London. And so How old were you when you arrived in London? Uh, 22, 23, 23, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Close to that. Yeah. And you haven't stopped traveling since really, have I you? I traveled, no, I was over, I traveled really from the age of overseas, 23 till I was 45, 46. And so during that time, the trade that you did, mm-hmm obviously helped you through the whole time because you always had something to fall back on. Yeah. And so did you work, when you say you arrived in London, did you go and work in a bar like normal people do when they arrive or did you go and do you do your trade? At first, well, I'd saved up enough in Western Australia. I thought I had enough to save to travel for two years. Oh, okay. Well, you thought. <laughs> well, that was cut by about 75% that time. <laughs> and then it went to the pounds. Yeah, no, no, but no, the first one I got to London, I just, it was great, it was new, but then in the early 80s, London was so dark and black and grimy. <laughs> no, no, it's, you know, it has. It's cleaned up. I think London gets better every time I go it back. Does, and it yeah, cleans up. True. And the only people I could really sort of happy all the time were the West Indian guys that had worked in the railways and on the bus. Hey, oh, yeah, they were the happy, smiling faces. Yeah. You know? And that's the first time I really heard Bob Marley as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, and ever since then, I've loved him. Yeah. But, anyway, but after that, I stayed in London for a while and, and met up with some other, a, a couple of guys that uh, I knew from Goulburn and shared house with them in Fulham. And then I've, 
wasn't I was going to get start travelling. I thought, oh, no, I'll stay in, in for a bit longer, and I got a job in a local pub, as yep, you said, as you do, yeah. Yep. And I thought, well, I might as well do something while I'm just yeah, trying definitely. to work. You to get do. to meet people as well, yeah. And I met some of the most. It wasn't it was one of the wasn't one of the most uh, upmarket pubs in yeah. in Fulham. And I met yeah, I met a, 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 a lady singer called uh, Linda Lewis. And uh, her husband was the lead guitarist for the Rod Stewart band. Oh wow! That stage, and the guy that owned the guy, the governor there was this yeah. East End, a burly. I wouldn't want to cross him. I didn't. <laughs> and that was another experience. And there was also the stage where the IRA were bombing, and yeah, you know, it was a pretty. You feel unsafe? Different culture. No, no, I don't know why. I, no, no, I didn't. I've, I've never felt unsafe. Any, I've been mugged and had troubles overseas, yeah. you know, but I've never really felt threatened or or. You know, that's sixth sense sometimes you go, oh, I should, shouldn't be walking here, shouldn't be, that's yeah, coming yeah. out. But London, no. But one thing funny you say, threatened, is that the, the, the assistant governor of that pub was an Irishman. One night we're knocking off work. He said, where are you off to? I said, oh, I'm going get to a, get a kebab. First thing we ever had in London as well. was the First kebab. time I had a kebab was in London. <laughs> and I said, I'm going home. He said, oh, I'm, I'm going down to the Hibernian Club. I said, why? He says, well, I'm Irish and it's got the best Guinness in London. And he said, besides it, we won't get bombed there. I said, well, why not? He says, an Irish hangout. The IRR ain't gonna bump ain't gonna bomb, bomb their yeah, own. Exactly. So uh so we, we used to drink their most. Is that of the time. where your love from Guinness come from? <laughs> yes, that's where it really started. Because <laughs> I remember one of the first times when we went out for a beer, it was like, we've got to go to this pub. Why? Because it's the best Guinness on the Gold Coast. <laughs> and, oh, that's funny. So you're in um you're in London and um you're obviously traveling all around the world. Boats, how'd that happen? How'd that happen? That happened by accident. Of course. What happened, I'd started travelling uh, after I left London. I did the normal thing. I ended up, I looked at all doing a bus tour. I had to do a bus tour because London was getting a bit, had a bit of a mix up there with a certain lady and brother didn't like <laughs> well, me. And I thought, I've, I've got to get out. So <laughs> I picked a Kentucky tour and just took off for six weeks and yeah. did that quick tour around, you know, around Central Europe. Europe and then got back into London. I thought, nah, I better get out of here. So I did. So I just, I just kept moving. I thought it was time. And I loved Europe so much. I loved it. Yeah, loved great it. place. So then I, I just started backpacking on my own. I worked my way down um, through France and through Spain. And then by the time I got down to southern Spain, I sort of uh, had two years buffer period. I thought I had to travel. I sort of cut down to six months. So yeah. I caught a train. Oh, sorry, I caught the ferry from Algeciras in Spain across to uh, Tangiers. And then I was going to stay longer there, but when we got off the ferry at Tangiers, the, 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 the Moroccan guy I was with, we were walking off and we got mugged. Well, they tried to mug us and he said, quick, pick up your backpacks and we, we relegged it. So I was going to go around Morocco for a while, but we stayed at his uncle's place and his uncle said, no, 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 no. He, li- he lived in Fez. He says, no, Greg, we'll stay here for a few days and, and stay with me and, and then I think it's best if you get on the ferry and you get back across go back to Spain and I thought I can't go back to Spain I want to work somewhere but then that's the only way you get in Gibraltar then so I caught a ferry from um, Tangier in Spain I went back I went into Gibraltar okay I didn't know the border was closed then you see oh <laughs> and I got there and, and I'm just wandering around and, and, and up and down the streets and I thought it's a nice place well it wasn't really but it was a good place to get off the ferry from anyway yeah, yeah. and uh, I, I thought I might stay here for a week and see what happens about the second or third day there, I, I met this guy that worked for an air conditioning company in town. He said, look, we've, we've desperate for a, a qualified uh, air conditioning and refrigeration technician. Uh, why don't you come and see the boss? So I did. And so I started working there. I did. I in took, Gibraltar? I took a six-month contract 
in, in Gibraltar with a, actually a British company that had a base. Out Did you need a visa or anything back then or just? They organised that. Being an oh, Australian, okay. no, but it was interesting when I was there because after about a month, two months, I realised it was too small. You're on in Gibraltar and the only way you could leave Gibraltar then was either to fly out and go back to England. Yep. Rights in because it was the border was shut to Spain, or you could get on the on the ferry from Gibraltar back to Tangiers, and then from Tangiers you could either go around or go back into Spain that way. Uh, but I wanted to save some money up again, so I put my head down, knuckled down a bit, and started working there uh, and saving up. But the the guy that managed the company wasn't the most honest person. No, and yeah, you know, you're doing work and installing air conditioning systems, and, and one night there's a knock on my door. I'm staying and. And it's a manager, and I thought, well, what's wrong? It's about 2 o'clock in the morning. I said, yeah, yeah, Gary, what is it? He said, come out here. I said, oh, okay. I'll go out there, and there's these military people in the police. And I'm thinking, I haven't done anything wrong. I said, they want you to go and do some work inside the rock because inside Gibraltar, you know, it was part of the NATO the rock. Inside yeah. the rock, they had – you know, the British military had a pretty good setup in there. Mm. And uh, they said, we want you to go and do some work. The military needs some help. They've got problems with some ventilation shafts and some air conditioning systems for their computer rooms, whatever it was. And I said, why me? He said, well, I can't go. I said, why not? He said, I'll, t- I'll explain that later. Just they need you to go now. You're the only one with NATO. Is it 2 a.m.? You're the only one with NATO clearance. Well, wow. So obviously, they, they knew who I was. Obviously, yeah, yeah. I'm in jib. And so that was my first experience getting taken at the middle of the night in these vehicles <laughs> into the tunnels inside the rock of Gibraltar. Where I, I did. I fixed some uh, ventilation uh, problems they had, and I think it was an air conditioning system for one of their computer rooms or whatever it was in there. Wow. I didn't, didn't really get to see in much of it. Yeah, and that was, that was very interesting. The next yeah. day I found out when I went back to, went to work, I said, what happened? There's, there's four qualified people. He said, no. He said, three of us had, had done um, union leader courses and they, in, in East Germany or East Berlin, so they, oh, weren't, wow. they weren't allowed inside anything military, and I forgot yeah. what the other guy was doing. So here was an Australian in Gibraltar, the only one allowed <laughs> to go in and, and do the NATO stuff. With the military, that would have been there. really interesting in the rock. Yeah, though, it was, yeah it? I didn't see much. Look, it was night. I saw some things. I didn't. It just there was a lot of just the whole equipment. secrecy of it yeah, and all that sort of yeah. stuff. But that was interesting then, but it was just it was too small. Yeah. So in the end, that guy that I was working for, the manager, after six months or eight months, I was supposed to get these bonuses for installing equipment and whatnot, and nothing coming. Never it was happened. cash, and I said, I went and said, hey. What happened to these bonuses? I said, in a better way than that. And he said, oh, well, you'll get them when you leave, maybe. I said, well, maybe. And then the secretary warned me. She said, look, he's ripped people off all the time. He pockets it because he's Gibraltarian. He gets away with it. And she said, you're probably not going to see it. I said, you're choking. He says, she's no. So um, that night I happened to meet some these guys in a, in a bar. And uh, they said, oh, look, we're trying to get another crew member. We want to go across the ocean to the other side to San Juan, Puerto Rico. The American owner's coming in soon and we need a, someone who can fix things, you know, an engineer like yourself. I said, yeah. They said, ever been on a boat? I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And so you might be the one. So we got together for a couple of weeks and I had a look on board this little old rusty 65-foot motor sailor and just fixed up engines, generators, just small stuff that wasn't yeah. working, electrical, mechanical, everything's going. And so the Yankee owner turns up and, you know, he's over the moon with me. He said, oh, gee, God damn it, I haven't been able to fix this stuff. He worked in the oil industry somewhere. I think it was in Saudi Arabia at that stage. And uh, he says, you're the man to come across the ocean with me in this boat. He said, been on a boat? I said, well, yeah, they asked me. I said, yeah, I've been on a boat. Good. You got the job. How big was the biggest boat you'd been on before that? 
been on the Sydney Harbour Ferry <laughs> from Circular Key to Manly. How big is the Sydney Harbour Ferry? Do you know how long that? Oh, it depends which one. Fifty metres, yeah, 50 maybe, metres? maybe forty metres. How depends big was which this one. boat? It's about sixty-five feet. What's that? Twenty metres. Twenty metres. So we're looking yeah. at a third of the size of the ferry, and you're going to yeah. cross the ocean. So anyway, what happened is I, I, <laughs> I said yes. I went to ask the, the um, the, the guy that I'd been working for, or the manager for my money and I'd leave and I gave him two weeks notice, which was I was supposed to do. He says, you can leave now. He said, you can? I said, yeah, okay, well, how about I come back and get the money owing to me? He says, well, how about you just leave now? Like, get really? Out. Didn't pay you? Yeah, and I was, wasn't too happy about that. Did you punch him in the face? Uh, we won't say any more. <laughs> but what happened before I left Gibraltar is that the, the secretary uh, that worked for him was a, a – she was actually a lady that had to leave um, Iran – Oh, okay. Beautiful, henna-headed girl, that, and, and just a lovely lady. And she came and said, come into the office tomorrow morning. And I said, okay, I'll go in the next morning or the, and go there. And she said, I said, yeah, what? She said, well, Gary's not here. I said, where is he? She said, no, here, take that. I said, watch, that's the money that's owed to you. Oh, and really? So you got paid? Box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then had to run out of Gibraltar. Well, no, I left the next day. I was leaving anyway, <laughs> yeah. you know. And I went back to Gibraltar probably about two years after that on a super yacht. Yeah. And I went to see her and she wasn't there. But I went and saw her. Her husband was a, a local accountant. He'd moved to London. They were moving to London. I went and saw him and I said, oh, I just want to thank you for getting that money. She said, Greg, that was the money from his petty cash and float. She found other and she stuck it in the petty cash box and gave it to you. She knew what was owed to you. She'd kept all the books. She knew what you were owed. Good on her. I never had a chance to thank her. Wow. <laughs> well, you can thank her now. Yeah. Do you remember her name? <laughs> no, I don't. No, but thanks anyway. Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> but then that was my first job. We'd, we'd, we'd left the harbour and uh, – 65 foot's not that big. It's tiny, but we are supposed to go – you leave Gibraltar and you, you follow the currents and, and the winds and, and you would come out of Gibraltar and you, you head south or south – hang on, yeah, you come out of Gibraltar and you head southwest, which will take you towards the Canary Islands. Yep. Which would probably be Beautiful about place. four or five days away. Mm-hmm. And then we would have refuelled and, and reprovisioned there and then headed, caught the current, and headed down and around and gone up into San Juan, Puerto Rico. But what an actual fact, we hit massive storms. And lucky the, the other two guys that were not, not counting the owner, one of them had been to sea before, and he was an excellent sailor. He'd been uh, a British sailor and, and a navigator. And there's a race in the UK called the Fastnet Race. And, mm-hmm. and one year, must have been late 70s or early 80s, uh, the Fastnet got, fleet got wiped out basically. Really? Well, he was from one the storm? Of, yeah, he was one of the ones that survived and his boat got through no problems. Uh, and after about seven, eight days, he said, this is strange. We should now be in the Canaries. There's something wrong with this compass. In the meantime, he called. going the wrong way. No, we're going the right way, but the compass was 27 degrees out, which means we would miss, not missing the Canaries, we would have we missed the, entire, the south tip of Southern America. So and what could, happens? You're stuck. Well, no, we, we, we would have been lost. Yeah. Then anyway... We would run out of food and everything by yeah, then. Yeah. But he called up on the on the VHF radio. Who called? I think it was a Russian super tanker going by us. And he called up and he asked them for their position. What? Can you please give us our position? Because they could pick us up on the radar. So they gave us what our position was. So he went and looked at the charts and worked out exactly where we were. And he said, "Greg, we're way out. We're so far out." And he called the owner up and said, "Your compass is. There's a massive problem here. We're missing the southern tip of the Canaries, and at this rate, we'll miss the southern tip of South America." Oops. And, and the owner went loopy. Went mad and yelled, screamed, ranted, and went and locked himself in his own cabin. And uh, the John, I think the guy's name was, said, "Greg, when I, I'm, I'm going to go up onto the bow, when I move my hand like that, will you? When I put my hand down, have a look and see what the compass 
is reading. So he did that. Came and had a look and said nothing. Went back up and we did it three times. He had this little hand, his own little own personal handheld compass that he yeah. had as a kid. He would have been, oh, I was in my, yeah, I think I was about 23 then. He, he had that handheld compass. He would have been 30-odd. And he'd always had it. He said, it's out by 26, 27 degrees. And so we got, he, he, over the next day or two, he'd call up super tankers or get on the VHF. Can you, anybody Work see our boat? And he worked out exactly. So in the meantime, we hadn't seen that owner. He, he'd locked himself in that cabin. He hadn't come out for two oh, days. Really? Times. Yeah, yeah. Well, he was shitting himself or? Well, what he did, when we, when we, when we, <laughs> before we left the boat, you know, the Brits the, in, in the British Navy, you know, in the, the, the messes, you can drink beer and that, you know. But this guy was ex- US uh, Navy as well, and he said, it's a dry boat. There's no there's no alcohol on here. Oh, maybe a few beers. So we bought some beers on, but John being a Brit and the other guy was Scottish, a few bottles of whiskeys and other yeah, things. Yeah, of course. Come, well, these, the owner found him. He confiscated them, stuck them under his bed. Oh. Well, those two days, he'd been in there and he'd finished off everything, you know. <laughs> the trouble it's was, all over. I was going to die. Yeah, I might as well drink. But he also, he also had a, something like a 357, which we didn't know about until he, came, until he came out drunk as a skunk, brandished it and shot, and, and shot a hole through the, the, uh, the deck house. John grabbed him, you know, because he was out of his head. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so we were left at that stage. We had to get – we thought there's no point turning back. The weather was so bad we couldn't head back towards Canaries, so we just kept going. But we should have been in the Canaries – sorry, in San Juan, Puerto Rico in about 10 to 15 days, 30 days it took us to get from Gibraltar. How did you, how'd the food and stuff go? We, we lived – we threw out um, fishing lines. You ever heard of um, – uh, I think they call it Dorado here, uh, dolphin fish. These oh, yeah. beautiful, okay, the beautiful big fish. We just we, we ate fish day in day. We cooked that with everything, with baked beans, with salt water. Really? We just lived on it, yeah. And, and all the engines broke down because he, he came the truth. The owner finally told us that when he sobered up enough and, and we let him out of the cabin, we locked him in his room in the end. He said, uh, look, I've got to tell you, I haven't done any maintenance on this for you know, seven or eight years. The work that you did, Greg, was the only work that's been done in all that time. I said, but you told us you had all spare parts and gen- – there's nothing here. There's not even a, a, a filter for the petrol or for, or, sorry, for the diesel or the oils, and they're all falling into bits. They dissolved. Wow. So we just spent all that time just pulling things to and pieces. Were you scared at all during no, that process? No, I, I didn't. No, it didn't matter. Because at one stage we had horrendous seas off the southern tip of, of the Canaries, and John said, okay, you just steer this course. He'd moved some, something around the compass and realigned it roughly what he thought it should be reading. And the, you know, the seas are that big. He said, you've, you've surfed. I said, oh. Yeah, I'm an Aussie. Of course, I never, never Aussie, I'm a surfer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and but you, yeah, the waves would pick you up and, and move you down. But you could get the feel, and you'd you'd steer the boat on at the helm, and you'd just go down the side of the waves. And I, I found it exhilarating. <laughs> would have been and John awesome. came out. and He said, "You're enjoying this. This is magic." <laughs> he says, "You don't know how dangerous it is. You see the size of those seas." I said, "I can't, can't see. They're pretty high." I'm looking out the wheelhouse window, <laughs> and he said, "It's good." He said, "You, you, got, you got the knack. You got the feel for it." So that's where you fell in love with it. That was that was when we got the other side. Right, and then when we got there, because it was an American vessel, we got there. We finally got the San Juan, Puerto Rico. He should have paid us so much per day. We would we'd logged when we left Gibraltar, so the, the the American authorities knew that thirty days or thirty two days we'd been at sea. So he owed us so much per day, but he said he's bankrupt. He's got no money. He's run out. Right, so he kicked <laughs> us off the boat. But at the same time, he went and stayed at the Hilton Hotel or the Hyatt Hotel oh. downtown San Juan, Puerto Rico. But where, 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 where he where he moored the boat beside this old rickety dock was his you know, the old cut barbed wire fences and in there uh, it was part of the uh, I don't know it was American no I think it was the San Juan Special Police Force because it's pretty San Juan's a bit of a dodgy place you know yeah. it can be uh, and three of the guys had fought with Australian or had had, had 
been in the Vietnam War. Two of them are, said, we're only alive because of diggers. Oh, wow. And for me, that was the, the, the one, a real eye-opener for me. When we told them what happened, they, they I think they would have popped this guy off. Really? Yeah, but they told us, right, we're going to sell all the gear on that. On that. We know what, we'll do a quick recce on this guy and we'll come back to you. And they came back. They said, okay, we're going to take what we can off this boat. We'll sell it. Take the other side to two marinas on the other side of the island. The guy, we've done a background check on him. He's not a good person. He's not bankrupt. But he's out all night with, uh, he's staying at these hotels. He's out with the ladies of the night to every night and he's not going to pay you. You can stay here and we'll, we'll get to the immigration. You'll be able to take him to court. So we made that, uh, we made inquiries about that with the yep. immigration. And it would probably take four or five months to get anything out of it. And we just thought, oh, let's get the hell out of that. So we were leaving San Juan, Puerto Rico. And uh, one of the other, the other Scottish guys said, oh, this is my dad's giving us, you know, send me some money, wire some money through. So, Greg, I'll give you enough. You can get your airfare home and John, you and I go back to Heathrow. John looked at me and says, you going to do that? I says, no way. He says, I don't want to. And, and the, this other guy, the Scottish guy, I forget his name, Peter, I think. Why don't you? This is, this is, this is yachting. This is S-H-I-T. And I said, it can't get any worse, can it? It has no, to get exactly. better. So I'm going to go to go to the U.S. Virgin Islands and see if I can do something else. I said, there's no way I'm going to turn up at home, stony broke, not <laughs> to sit in my pants and say, oh, well, you know, I, I didn't make it or I couldn't make it. So I said, no, I'll put up with this. So we did. We went to the other side to uh, port the ferry across to uh, St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And uh, three days later, we're sleeping on beaches with a backpack and run out of money. And I thought, well, got to look for work. And John said, well, I'm going to go to the smallest boat and work my way up in the marina. I said, I'm going to go to the largest and start down. <laughs> I walked on the largest boat. It was a 120-foot uh, uh, motorboat. It's a super yacht. Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, then that was big. Yeah, they yeah. got bigger. And uh, fortunately, the captain, assistant captain, was a um, an Australian. Okay. And he said, well, I'm looking for day work. And he said, what can you do? I said, uh, not. He said okay, we'll get you a job on deck. You can clean the decks for a day or two. And I said, after the first day I'm cleaning the decks, I thought, not, I'm an engineer. I'm doing this. But I did. I needed the money. Yeah. And it, 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 uh, he, he said to me, he said, uh, Rod, he said, Greg, uh, I suppose you want a, an advance of $100. I said, yeah, that'd be great. I said, look, would you do me a favour? I said, is there any chance you get an advance of $200? He said, what? I said, I said, that's all right. I don't want to offend you. I'll, I'll give 50 to John. And the, the owner was there and he said, he said, you're not shy, are you? And I said, look, I don't, I don't mean to be rude, but this John guy saved my life. I said, I wouldn't be standing here. And I told him what happened when we sailed and the guns yeah. and, and this weather. I said, this guy could sail. I'd be at the bottom of the ocean. So he hasn't got a job yet. I just want to give him $100 so we can go get a bite to eat and that and some somewhere, a roof over a hedge tonight. Yeah. And, the, and the owner was nice. He said, you bring that guy around here tomorrow. And so uh, I got a permanent job as promoted from deck to a, First mate, chief engineer. Oh, really? And John, uh, this guy called Paul Schofner, he phoned some friends of his in the States and they had another boat that was further down Ireland somewhere. I think it was in the US, I think it was in St. John's and they flew John to another boat and he walked on to captain on this massive sailboat. Wow. And that's how we got going. I said, we won't chuck the towel in, we'll get going. Good on him. And you still mates with John? Haven't seen him for about, well, for 20 years now. Yeah. But I did bump into him from time to time. Just through throughout the world. Yeah. So you then then for the next what twenty years you're on boats? 
Yeah, it wasn't about that. Yeah. Wow. Because I remember when we first met, you were um you were here for a while, then you disappeared. Yeah. You went overseas yeah. for three or four months, and you were going to work on uh, on Bloomberg's boat and those yeah. and those sort of guys. And I'm sort of sitting there going, "But he's a refrigeration. How did the hell did this happen?" And then it was like, "Wow, that's that's what you did." Yeah. Well, what I did then, my engineering background was great. You know, yep. I could fix diesels, pumps, anything that anything that rotated or didn't rotate that should, I could pretty yeah. well fix it. Yep. And I was good with my hands and, and you know, a ship or a boat, whatever you want to call them, they're, they're wood and metal so I could weld. That was great. And in those days when you first started on, particularly on the super yachts, there, there, were, there were no qualifications to be an engineer on a super yacht because they weren't classified by the IMO, International Marine Organisation. There was no – yachts didn't fit any particular – position in their books so oh, I, could, okay. I could just walk on as a chief engineer and I could, if I could do the work I got the job it was that yep. simple so long as the insurance company Lloyd's or DNV accepted your qualifications and made the work out you could do the job you got the job but what I did I started doing then is I realized well I did need to do courses particularly when I started doing my big refits and that um, I went to uh, there's a place called Warsash College it's uh, annexed to, to the University of Southampton England so I started doing my marine engineering courses there uh, to get, I still couldn't get yacht because there's no such thing as yacht qualifications. So I was getting commercial qualifications, and then you're using them in the yachts. Yeah, but then when okay. I went, when I, when I tried to step up the ladder with my marine qualifications for the merchant marine, yeah, uh, they wouldn't let me do it because they said, "Hang on, you're an Aussie to start with, <laughs> and you're not working on commercial vessels. You're working on private yachts, so you can only do this class three. You can't go any further." I said, "Well, hang on, these this boat, these engines. I, I, there's one boat I was on. It's twelve thousand horsepower. And this boat was." 60 metres long and it did 35 knots. I said, what, what have you got in the merchant that does this? Nothing. I said, that's a lot of power. Yeah, definitely. There's still lives at stake. And they said, we know that, but we, we, don't, have any, we don't have any chart or anything written that uh, qualifications for, for superior engineers. So I just kept on doing courses. I did, I did other courses in Holland and in America for, for um, electronics uh, in Germany. I, I worked with them. They did about four different courses with the MTU Corporation, which is a division of Mercedes down, down near uh, – uh, Bowdency, it's called. So I just did different courses in different parts of the world. So and what do you class yourself as now? So you are a refrigeration mechanic, or are you a marine I, engineer, or what? What are you now? I, 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 I probably classify myself as a marine engineer. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So we, I mentioned earlier in the introduction that you're a husbandish. <laughs> I like to call you that because you've never actually married your wife, um, your lovely wife Karen, or sorry, um, and your beautiful children. You guys met on a boat, is that right? How did that work? Yeah, we met in um, in San Remo, Italy, which is just if you, if you move west across the east across the border from Monaco, it's about a half hour drive down from Monaco. Uh-huh. And uh, I just finished building this boat uh, as a build engineer for the for the owner, and we were just taken to sea. And after I finished building, he said, "Well, do you want the chief's job?" I said, "Oh, for a couple of years, yes." And I was working on the platform then. I just saw this. Your walk on board and this vision of this loveliness. Vision, yes, yeah. And, and um, <laughs> when these super yachts come into port, they, they need you can only carry so many crew on a super yacht. It's just not big enough to carry all that you really need to keep them totally operational. Okay. So when you get when you get into a harbour and you've got a day or two or three weeks, you bring in day workers or you you fly in. I'd, I'd fly in an assistant engineer from somewhere from the UK to come and give me a hand for three or four days. Or if I found someone local, you had to blitz the boats, get it ready because the owners didn't care. Yeah, they exactly. just, when they come on board, it has to work. It has to be it's ready. that simple. Nothing. There's no excuse. This doesn't work. It's, it's that, that doesn't wear with them. And that's fair enough. Um, 
so Karen was there living in in, in, in uh, San Marino at that stage, and uh, yeah, she got a job in assistant to work in the interiors, to your desk, and help cleaning, getting getting the boat ready for the next the owners to turn up again. But I knew that uh, the, the the captains or the the head interior person was looking for another assistant. Okay, and Karen got on well. Yeah, and this German girl, she didn't like me. And she said, came up to me one afternoon. She said, "And so, what do you think of of Karen?" I said, "Who? The English girl that's been working." And I said, "Oh, she seems quite nice." Oh, yeah, I haven't really noticed. I've been too busy doing any work. <laughs> <laughs> and she went and offered Karen the job. And I said, "Oh, yeah, I think she's really pretty. I don't think she would have got the job." So that's how we met. No, that's a, it might so sound how a bit many shallow. years ago was that? Twenty-five years ago. Twenty-five years. Yeah, yeah. and that was wonderful. We we worked together. They say, if, look, if if a relationship can work on 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 a yacht, you, everybody thinks you, there's some programs on super yachts, and it's it's blown out of proportion. You're living together seven days a week, twenty-four hours a day without a break, and a lot of times, the the cabins and the way that you don't have time to even have your own space. Karen and I never shared a cabin in in the. In the Eight years we worked together on the, wow. she had, would have to be with the stewardesses. Yep. I, normally the chief had his own cabin. Sometimes I did, but otherwise um, I'd have to share with the mate or somebody. So you really didn't have a problem. And you're together all the time. And, yeah. and your personal life, your business life mixes over. Even, you know, like nurses, you, you get a chance to go home and have a rest. On these things you don't. And in the, in, the, in the summertime then with a lot of these people, particularly the way we worked, from the end of April until first week of September, so April, May, June, July, August, September, you were pretty well at their beck and call seven days a week, 24 hours a day. At least for it's three months straight. Isn't it, really? And people say, oh, it must be hard for the captains, the deckies or the engineers. But I still believe though the ones that work the hardest are the interior staff and not of yeah. those yachts. They just work day and night, you know. So have so, you watched that show Below Deck? No. I think it's called Below Deck. Yeah, I, I've heard of it, but yeah, I haven't watched it. No. Oh, yeah. I just want to know how real it was because some of the stuff that happens on there, you sit there and they're like, they're, look, they're, the boat's there. They have like different people come on all the time. They, they hire it out, if you like, for like seven-day stints or five-day yeah, yeah. stints. And even just like watching it on the – obviously, it's different on the telly. It's all dramatised. But just the, like literally the close quarters that these people are all living in. Oh, yeah. And if it's your partner – like you, you said earlier about your mantra of sort of not suffocating love and that sort of stuff, it's um, it's amazing that you sort of you've survived. And if you can survive that, you can survive everything. That's that's the most important thing there. I think one of the the first time I started, the first big boat I started on was a, a sixty three meter boat um, called Nonstop, and it was in we had to go. We rebuilt it in Germany over a twelve month period in a place called Bremen, and I'd never worked with the Germans before. But one thing. I'd, I'd love Germany. I love. I could live in Germany. I haven't <laughs> probably spent about four years there all up. Um, the Germans have a great way, I think, of dividing their personal life and their social life in many ways. Mm-hmm. You know, like here in Australia, oh, he's my friend. He's my friend. Well, if you're with a group of Germans and you're working, they'll, they'll say to you, "Oh, somebody, this is my Arbeit's friend. This is my work friend. This is my Arbeit's colleague. This is my working colleague." And if you're friend, they say, "This is my friend, friend or friend." Yeah. So they, they they split the difference, and I think that's brilliant. Yes, it is. I agree. You know. So and, and when Karen, when we were working together, and, and sometimes it hadn't worked out with others, but I would say I'm the chief engineer, and you're the, the cook or the chief stewardess or the purse or whatever. Works work, and our our relationships our relationship. Yep. If you have if you get hassled by the captain or the owner or whatever, I'm not going to step in. I'll listen to you. I'm there. That's not my jurisdiction. I look have to look after the, the boat, the engineering, and my other engineers. Yeah. 
And, and we, Karen and I did that. And, and that's, I think, the way it has to work. There has to be that separation. Definitely. And there's lots of people out there that actually work with their spouses. Yes. And uh, it's a really hard thing to do. Like 24-7, seven, seven days a week is a tough gig because you need space. You need to give people their space and all that sort of stuff. I think that's a, that's a really important message, really. And, is, and if you do have a day off, and like in these summer periods or the, own, the period the owners are on board, I didn't do the charter boats. I did, I did a couple of charters that on a, on, for private boats, but I didn't like the chartering industry. Yeah. Um, but if I had time off, you know, you're in these beautiful places. You might be in, in Monaco. You might be in Saint-Tropez. You might be in the Caribbean. You might be in the Bahamas or wherever in Fort Lauderdale, Miami. It is. So you get time off. But what happens most of the yachties, they get time off, and there's a yachty bar, and they go straight down there. <laughs> so no one breathes. So any time I had time off, I'd head to the hills, or I'd go yeah. four or five streets back. Imagine, you say you're in in, in, in Nice or, or Cannes or somewhere. If you go to where the tourists are, you, you're a tourist. If you go four or five or six streets back, or you go to the medieval part of town or go to the hill, place on the hill, you're still travelling and you're still getting away. You, so when you come back, you've, you've refreshed yourself. You've seen something different. So I always, I always did that. I never wanted to be a tourist. I wanted to be a traveller. That's what we do when we go somewhere anywhere in the world. We always catch public transport. No matter yeah. where we are, we'll catch the local train, local bus, whatever, because then you actually get an understanding of how mm. the people live and how that all works. Yeah, so, a, right. so what's your greatest ever achievement in life? Raising two children. <laughs> I don't know if it's an achievement. It's not over yet. What's going to be my question? Is that an achievement? Is parenting yeah, an achievement? Parenting. I, I think I, I think, think it bloody is too. You know, I, <laughs> I always you think of it these days, equality and what's happening in the world. Uh, raising children. Tough gig, bud. Yeah, not for me. No. You know, so I think it's what you want to do. It's you what have you to your love and you respect your women, your, your your partner. You look at your mother or your father, but it's uh, more credit has to be given for the, the role that women play raising children. Oh, bringing you know, up kids. Oh, I'm with you 100%. And not, not, it's not a role. It, it, it's a... It's a Gift. vacation. You know, it, it's a full-time job. It's more than a full-time job. Yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. And then a lot of mothers go and work as well and they do all they yeah. do. Work. But the whole the whole thing there is that I've done it for a few days on my own. <laughs> Seriously, and it's one of the toughest gigs I've ever done. They do it full-time and, and it, it's just unbelievable. And uh, shout out to all the mums out there because you do a wonderful Absolutely. job. Yeah. You do a wonderful yeah. job. Yeah. Who's the person or the p- people who have had the most influence on your life, career or personally? I've been very, very fortunate that uh, the example and the drive that was, I think, put into my body and soul and mind started with my mother and father. Yep. They did a great job with, 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 with all my siblings as well. I think they did. Might have failed a bit with me. <laughs> but you, you, <laughs> you, you were convinced to get out there to, 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 yeah. to, to have a crack. Get up and have a go, always. Uh, and, 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 and I must admit, the, the, particularly the some pats and that you're you're encouraged to be to be a to be a doer yeah get up and have a go and put your best foot forward and then i look at it a couple of times i give a couple of times only at sea i nearly sank you know i i I thought this is it we've finished massive seas engines nothing working and i thought i'd go god i wish i had like i had a couple of friends that uh, were both uh, electricians electrical engineers and they worked in the mines after left gold and i wish I, i wish I wish Jeff and I wish Greg was here. They they wouldn't throw the talent because my other engineers had said, one said, oh, I'm too tired. I can't work any longer. The other one says, I've got a headache. I want to sit down for a while. 
you know, we're going to sink. And I, and I knew if these guys were here, so I'd say, these guys drove me on. I, I, I loved them so much and I knew that they'd never throw in the towel. I played yeah. footy with them or cricket or whatever. And also my brothers and sisters and, and people like Simon and Andy and Pom Adams and all these people that I'd grown up with, they were achievers, they were doers. And there were people who would never throw in a towel or let you down. And always had your back. Yeah, absolutely. And then I was also very fortunate because I had a, an attitude um, is that always do your best, but you're never in control of your life totally. And yeah. when you're working on these on the soup knots in particular, I'll give you an example. I was with a, working as a chief engineer and this is prior to meeting Karen I got this job and, this, and my girlfriend came and says, we have to leave the boat because the owner's just fired my best friend. I said, well, so what happened? So he told her that she's Sagittarius and he's, he's whatever, something else. He's, he's a, a Piscean and uh, it's, it's not good for me. I have to make some important business decisions in the next two or three days. I need you off the boat. But he gave my girlfriend's girlfriend something like six months' salary and like enough money for a, a airfare around the world, yeah. And, and put, dumped her in, well, didn't dump her. Took her ashore. We took her ashore on, in St Martin in the Caribbean, and off she went. These people, if your face fit good, and if it wasn't working, you were gone. Mm. Here today, gone tomorrow. And I learned that real quick. So, and they're smart business people, and they read you. They know how far they can push you, or yep. what you're willing to give and not give. And the first guy I worked for on, on the biggest boat. It, I resigned and he said, well, why are you resigning? I said, well, you're not paying me enough money. And he said, well, I employ three and a half thousand people around the world. How am I supposed to know how much you're supposed to be paid? I said, come on, you do. I've asked the captain a few times about, you know, I haven't had a pay rise and this is that. And I've found out what the standard wage, wages should be or salary should be. And he said, uh, so you're going to leave? I said, yeah. He said, you don't like me. I said, well, you're okay. So he said, okay, come back tomorrow and we'll talk again. Come back with an idea of what you want and tell me. And I came back with an idea and I said, okay, thank you very much. Look, I would like to stay, but I'd like this much and I'd like this much time off. And he chopped me down. I said, but you asked me to come back with something. He said, no, you came back with what you want. That's not what I want. He said, you've got to come up, aim higher. Yeah. He said, Greg, unless you, if you want to go into business and you work in life, you have to learn two main, main, main things in business. You have to delegate. Hard and, to do. And, and he said, you never get what you deserve in business. You, you know, you have to work for it. Yeah, definitely. Said, you, know, you have to get negotiates. So unless you learn to be a good negotiator, you're going to fail that way. And that's two things I've always remembered. Delegate and negotiate. Learned. Yeah, Good lessons And learned. then other people I work for as well, uh, luckily I got on with them. Uh, a lot of the mentoring they did, uh, where they'd talk about things and how business works. Uh, so, look, it was great. I, it was the school of... Life, I suppose. Yeah, it's school of hard knocks. And, 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 the people, and, and I work for some pretty wealthy people. Yep. But uh, they're just people. Yeah, but no, but a lot of the, I must, the ones I work with, and that's why I generally I found out if on, on the private super yachts, the ones, the old the old money, they've had it, they know how they know how it came from, maybe three, four, five generations. They yeah. have different attitudes to the nouveau riche. A lot of nouveau riche would buy the super yachts and they realise we can't really afford this, oh, we'll charter it. Because the agents would say, oh, if you charter or pay your expense, it never yeah. worked. So you, that, that you, you're flogged to death and you're dumped. And I just like The old money was better? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the people, they had, you know, they, they knew where they come from. They're more comfortable in their own skins. They weren't afraid of being, I didn't think of being, you know, robbed or ripped off all the time. And did you find the older money, the people are better people? And what I mean by that is that they're not as arrogant or not as um, 
I don't know what the word is, but but then they're, they're sort of just because they're used to that, or because they're just nicer. Was there was there like a stigma uh, about these people? Yeah, look, that's one way. Look, there's good and bad, and, and in everyone, in everyone. But yeah, I, I just found it. You, yeah, they they had more. They, I think they're more comfortable in their own skin, also, and that's it's probably not fair. You you, you be generalising or yeah, stereotyping yeah, no, cool. people, but I just found it. Yeah, I, the ones that had the money for a long time were the, the more pleasant. What's the biggest with. boat you've ever been on? Biggest boat ever been on? And I don't mean by cruise liner, I mean by super yacht. Super yacht, 84 metres. Um, recently, old, recently we were on. a cruise liner. Yeah, <laughs> but recently the um, one that was in here, I think it was, in, it was on the Gold Coast yep. uh, called Dragonfly. It was a, one of the Google boats. Yep, how big was that? 74 metres. Wow. Yeah, and that was actually built in Australia. It's a beautiful vessel. Those beautiful boat, lovely people on board. Yeah. That's, that's that's a big boat. Some quick fire questions. What's your favourite food? I'll, I'll say Mediterranean, Italian, French, or Spanish around the Mediterranean Sea. Favourite song? Bob Marley. Either Three Little Birds or One Love. Favourite place in the world? Oh. you're a Leyland brother. You've been everywhere, man. You know, Where's the best place? I don't think. Look, it's it's been wonderful. I, you've I, got I haven't to, got, you've got to I pick couldn't one. Couldn't say one. No, if you no. had to go somewhere today on an aeroplane, where would you go? I'd probably put, I'd probably pick a mountain somewhere, somewhere I've never been. Maybe Kathmandu. I don't know. I'd love to go back to the to the Andes. Uh, no, okay. One thing I'd like to do right now, if I could, if someone said you've got twelve months to do something, what would you do? I'd I'd go somewhere to the Rocky Mountains and spend twelve months there. In the Rockies. That'd be amazing. Can I come? Yep, welcome. Love it, love it. What's next for Greg Probilski? We'll see, we'll see. There's, there's, there's lots happening business-wise. As yep. you know, I've doing thermography work as well. Uh, my heart and love is is the super yacht industry still, but we we don't have the bigger boats here, which which I enjoy doing. Yep. So I'll be going overseas more and looking to get uh, back in there, back in there more. To, yeah, to, to grow in there. I've got all my contacts in now Northern Europe and in the states, and just to. Keep enjoying life, you know. If you said, "What do you want to do the most?" I, I want to laugh. I want to smile. I want to live, mate. Yes, that's what yeah. it's all about. Yeah. And, 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 as we did, what did we do this morning at six o'clock. Well, we had a game of golf. <laughs> you had to bring that up. Yes, you won. Okay, that's all I have. To no, say. I wasn't going to say that. But the, hey, that was before the sum was up. <laughs> exactly, and that's it. That's been. I wanted to be able to spend more time with family and friends, and business is wonderful. And I, and I wanted to be even more successful in business. But it's being with family and friends has always been my life. Mate, well, as far as I'm concerned, you've got two amazing children. You and your wonderful missus have brought them up unbelievable, which shows the type of people that you are. Thank you. You're a very good friend, mate. I love you dearly. I love your family dearly. You are a brother from another mother. Even more importantly, you're an awesome human. Thanks so much for joining me, and thanks for telling us your story. It's been a pleasure being with you again. Thanks, brother. Hey, guys, thanks for listening. And what an amazing human. Don't forget to hit us up on all the social channels at BJ Macker and look out for more Meteorate podcasts.